0: Coco Seco! I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 138, and it continues the story that we began in episode 137. That is, that the Batista government was now fallen. And Castro and the revolutionaries were now assuming the power vacuum and were taking control of Cuba, as they planned. And the events that occurred rapidly in 1959, almost from the very beginning, would put Fidel Castro in this new revolutionary government on a collision course with the United States. The assumption of government by Castro would also ferret out, once and for all, the true colors of Fidel Castro. He was not for democracy. In his actions, his almost immediate actions made it very clear how public and how deep his previous lives had been to the world. And it was for a single purpose, to hold the United States in abeyance long enough for the rebels to get firm control of the country so that they could then eradicate every form of U.S. involvement in Cuba's internal affairs and eliminate imperialism as they saw it. And the related government corruption at all levels that Cuba had experienced throughout most of the 20th century since it had been wrestled away from Spain. There is a spirited debate among historians about whether Castro was a closet communist from the very beginning, or whether the United States inevitably pushed him into the ideological camp of his most trusted comrades, Raul Castro and Che Guevara. But regardless of what the true answer was, Actions speak louder than words, and everything he did clearly reinforced the idea that he was simply a wolf in German shepherd clothing. The world is a complicated place, and the truth of his story is more nuanced than just this, I know. But in the end, people and leaders make fundamental choices, and Castro made his. And he made it when he murdered scores of Cubans right after taking control in pseudo-trials that looked nothing like a Western system of justice. His sympathizers would offer up rather weak defenses. After all, these men who were killed were murderers. And Cuba's system of justice was based on the Napoleonic Code, different from the overall system of justice practiced generally in the United States. I won't even deign to address that concept. As I said, the arguments were weak, even if you agreed morally with killing bad people summarily. Because in many cases, this is exactly what they were doing. But more simply put, when it comes to the concept of the rule of law, the revolutionaries made their own revolutionary legal code, a code that evolved during the course of the struggle, totally self-sanctioned, and they adopted it as soon as they seized power. It was not a system of laws that had been justly adopted by the populace, by lawmakers. It was a silly code applied in a kangaroo court that probably exterminated a lot of bad people, but undoubtedly some good people, too. And the real question is whether there was truly due process under just laws. The truth is that he had done the same thing that the previous dictator did. So what was the real difference, you might ask? Oh, and then there is this thing about private property a pillar in a capitalist economy. Well, Castro seized almost $830 million worth of it in 1959 as he nationalized assets, businesses and land mostly, that belonged to foreigners, mostly from the United States. All this was enough to incense the powers that be. The U.S. was going to war. In this case, a secret war. All of this was the sum total of what was about to unfold in Cuba. But, as always, I'm getting ahead of myself, so let's back up the tape, and without further ado, let's listen to episode 138 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Within the first couple of weeks of 1959, both the Soviet Union and the United States recognized Fidel's new government as the official government of Cuba. New Year's Day, January 1, 1959, is largely symbolic, and it's referred to as the point at which Batista was finally toppled and Castro and his cohorts took over. It's a fitting day when choreographing things, but really, The outcome was already determined by the morning of January 1, and yet there was still some tidying up to do to secure control for Castro and his troops. As Batista exited, he left one of his generals in charge of the army, and he left the head of the Supreme Court in charge of the government, as nominal as that concept would be at that moment. That morning, Fidel would send a message throughout Cuba on his rebel radio station. He would declare on the radio that the tyrant Batista has fled. He would speak to the people of Cuba and he would say this. A military junta in connivance with the tyrant has taken power to secure his flight and that of the country's assassins and to halt the revolutionary tide and snatch away our victory. The people and the workers of Cuba must immediately prepare for a general strike tomorrow, January 2nd, all over the country, as a way of supporting the armed revolutionaries and thereby guaranteeing total victory for the revolution. He would send Che Guevara and Camilo Cienfuegos, who were already in central Cuba, to make their way to Havana and to take the city. He would send his brother Raul toward Guantanamo. Fidel himself was closest at that moment to the city of Santiago, and that is where he would head to secure the city there. As the rebels entered these cities, they were met with incredible joy from the people. That night, Fidel would reach Santiago, and he would address a crowd of hundreds of thousands of people, and he would speak for hours. The speech that night had over 12,000 words in it, and it was more than 30 single spaced pages. Yet he did not speak from the transcript. In Spanish, he was one of the most dynamic and stirring and contemporaneous speakers of his time. In another moment of cleverness by Fidel, he would declare Santiago the new capital of Cuba, and not Havana. On the surface, it seemed quite symbolic, as Castro himself was from that area of Cuba. But it was actually done for a more practical reason. You see, the general was still in charge of the Batista government back in Havana. So it really was just a simple and convenient way to immediately declare the city where they had just and first taken control to be the capital. It seems silly now, but when Che Guevara and Camilo Cienfuegos made their way to Havana the next day and took control right away, well, Havana was renamed the capital at that moment. (laughs) oops, sorry, we made a mistake. But the Cuban people seemed not to be concerned about these Keystone Cop type of moments. As I said, they were simply deemed clever by those who followed Fidel. Fidel would use the statement that the revolution begins now. This was subtle, and it was more than symbolic. You see, Fidel remembered very clearly the history lessons from the War of Independence in 1895, when the United States entered the conflict and then, at the end, would not allow Cuban troops to enter the city of Santiago. Fidel was committed that it would not be like 1933 and it would not be like 1944 either. None of these previous historical happenings would be repeated. They would not repeat the mistakes of those uprisings. It's hard to underestimate the sense of energy that the revolution created inside of Cuba at that moment. People were wearing red and black armbands which were a symbol of the 26th of July movement. And all over the country you could find men immediately beginning to support Beards that imitated the Barbudos. Men who had left the country and gone to Miami and other locations, well they just came home. In February 1959, The Bohemia, which was one of the mainstream papers in Cuba, conducted an opinion poll, and it was an incredible reaffirmation of what was happening in the eyes of public opinion. 92% of the respondents to the poll said that they believed that this new government of Castro was doing everything perfectly well. And amongst the Cuban people, there was a sense of urgency, as if the last 50 years and even though they were ostensibly as an independent nation, well, the truth was that they were still a vassal to the United States and the U.S.'s policies. And there was a need to catch up, catch up for lost time. The headline in one Havana newspaper read, Be Quick, We Have Lost 50 Years. And Castro and the government that was taking hold would do just that. They would declare change after change, and they would do it quickly. On one day alone, January 6th, obviously an ironic parallel with our own current history. Well, on that date, the Castro Junta passed 14 new laws, including one that suspended all existing age requirements for public office. That was important for Fidel's participation as well as others. This was an important change because now these youngsters, these young revolutionaries, could now assume lofty government positions and do it legally. In the first 9 months, the new government enacted some 1500 laws, decrees and edicts. It raised wages, it cut telephone and electricity rates, it reduced urban rents, and it seized property of past government officials. And as its defining act, it passed legislation related to the long awaited agrarian reform. In just months, the revolution accomplished things promised sometimes decades earlier. On the surface, many of these things were designed to put power and the economics of the island back in the people's hands, back in Cuban hands. But did they? Well, we'll get to all of that soon enough, but certainly they solidified Castro's public support. On January 8th, Castro made his way to Havana, entering the city, riding on the top of a tank. If you watch the film clips of this event, it seemed like anybody within 50 miles of Havana must have come that day to Havana to become part of the throng that engulfed the city. He came with Celia Sanchez at his side, and he would meet with his newly appointed president, Manuel Arrutia. In another clever move, Castro would decide that he would address the people from the military installation at Colombia, the headquarters of the Cuban military and not from the presidential palace in Havana. In his own words, he would say, I want the people of Cuba to know that the military installation here now belongs to them. It was more than symbolic because the crowds had originally gathered at the presidential palace, and Colombia was on the outskirts of Havana, some seven miles away. He was literally asking the masses to follow him physically, and they did. He would stage an interesting exercise designed to show the whole world that was watching at that moment that there was discipline and civic order in Cuba and obeyance to him. He would ask the crowd of hundreds of thousands to open up a path, and he and the new president would, by themselves, walk through it without the help of guards or others to clear the way. Later on he spoke that night to the masses who had followed him and gathered at the Columbia military installation. Starting at 8:30 p.m. the oratory would begin and he was still going strong 5 hours later at 1:30 a.m. the next morning. Castro would waste no time putting in a provisional government naming Manuel Urrutia as the president and Jose Miro Cardona as the prime minister. Prior to the revolution Cordona was president of the Havana Bar Association. In the beginning, Castro would retain only one official position, and that was commander in chief of the army. He would open a suite on the 23rd floor of the Havana Hilton, a structure that was owned by a U.S. company, and that would serve as his headquarters and his home. As might be expected, for one of the first orders of business of a revolutionary regime. Castro would purge the old government, and as soon as he could, his regime would quickly fill various positions. Well, that's exactly what they did. In fairness to Castro, there was an element of public clamor about the injustices and brutal treatment that the Batista regime had inflicted on them, on the populace, that is. They wanted revenge, and in some cases, the public wanted it even more than Castro's government did. The response to this is that the rebel government created revolutionary tribunals formed effectively to try former Batista officials. For each trial, juries were composed of rebel army veterans and members of the local community, and they heard testimony of witnesses before the public. Mothers confronted the killers of their sons. Children accused the murderers of their fathers. And sometimes former soldiers and Batista's army veterans Detailed the criminal actions of their superiors. In some cases, well, perhaps many cases, the person standing trial confessed, and they resorted to the famous defense of other famous trials. They would say, I acted under orders. The new regime wasted no time in doling out their form of justice. Early in January, 71 prisoners were executed. They were all members of a private militia headed by a Batista ally. They came to their end, facing a firing squad, and it was all covered by news photographers who captured images of it all, including priests hearing the confession of a condemned man. And they would show a ditch, some 40 feet long, 10 feet wide, and 10 feet deep, where the corpses were placed after execution. It looked like a Nazi film. By the end of January, the trials had resulted in the execution of more than 250 people across the island. By March, that number exceeded 500 killings, and most of them were former Army police and state intelligence members accused of multiple counts of torture or murder of prisoners. This new government had now brought their own brand of violence to the game of retribution. This new government seemed perfectly at ease with taking over the mantle and title of chief murderer of Cuba. Back in the United States, these executions became well known to politicians and journalists. And finally, members of Congress began to issue statements of outrage and condemnation of these actions being taken by the new Castro regime. There would be a debate about it on the U.S. Senate floor with all the theatrics and graphics, too. Which included photographs that came with these sort of circumstances. It was terrible, and it was gripping. And while the American public was getting a completely different view now of this new brand of dictator, the trials themselves back in Cuba were receiving accolades from the populace. Perhaps the purge was the most important thing that the public felt they had done in the early stages. Not everybody in Cuba was happy with the trials, Fidel had initially installed what was to be a puppet government, but it wasn't long until the shadow was thin and it became clear that Fidel was making the decisions, all the major decisions behind the scenes. His new prime minister, José Miro Cardona, resigned in mid-February, in part because of the form of the trials, but perhaps more proximately because of the increasing control that Castro was exercising behind the scenes. Wasn't it convenient that just about the same time, around the time that the barrage of laws were being passed, the government gave more power to the prime minister's position? And upon Jose Cardona's resignation, Fidel would assume the position of prime minister. He was the undisputed public leader of a government, a government that he had actually been leading all along. Even if there still was a president in place, it was irrelevant. And that president would not be long there either. The first two months of 1959 were mostly about dismantling the prior Batista government and installing new officials and passing laws that repealed so much of what Batista had put in place. But by early March, the regime was turning its attention to some of the larger policy issues that they were beginning to address, and policy issues that they had expressly stated were part of the revolution. Their first move was to pass the Urban Reform Law, a law which cut rental rates by as much as 50%. This was a big deal in Cuba because 63% of Cubans were renting their homes in 1959. As a result of the passage of this law, most landlords and property owners saw drastic reductions in their income, of course, as they were on the opposite side of that transaction but the intention of it was that ordinary men and women who were renting got a windfall economically. Other important changes were to follow. There were laws that increased salaries and reduced utility rates, and there were other laws such as those that would institute provisions against racial discrimination. These laws were designed to quickly connect the Cuban populace hundreds and thousands of individuals, really millions, directly to the value of the revolution to them. As historian Luis Perez says, these changes were about effecting an immediate and lasting stake in the success of the revolution. It's hard to underestimate how pregnant the minds of the populace were around these ideas, around the ideas of major social reform. Even before Castro's government began, these changes solicited demonstrations across the country. Demonstrations that demanded various reforms and which began to spring up all over. In a larger sense, the issue of land reform was high on the list, and it was coming shortly from the government. Castro's government was getting it from all directions. Workers and labor unions were pressing them. And the unions were working hard for across-the-board 20% wage increases and improved working conditions as well. And generally, there was an expectation that major labor contracts would be renegotiated across a host of unionized businesses. They also wanted grievances addressed that had taken place as a result of actions taken for political reasons under the Batista regime. You see, many people were dismissed out of their jobs when they politically disagreed with the Batista regime, and these transgressions needed to be righted. Now, the idea of an across-the-board 20% increase was a sticky one, even for the new government. And alternatively, the government very cleverly chose a different path. They would become engaged in individual mediations that were settled mostly in favor of individual workers. And there were more than 500,000 of those cases that were settled in 1959 in a huge fervor. But with each one of those cases came an individual message sent to each one of those individual citizens that the government was on their side now. Settled in favor of each of those individual workers after hearing their individual grievance. It was a brilliant political move on Castro's part. And in the end, still many did get wage increases out of all of this. Overall, wages increased about 14% in that first year, compared to an average 4% annually in the two preceding years. In an interesting twist, apparently even the affluent got involved, fearing that they would somehow get caught up in a government tangle regarding their prior tax bills. Many would elect to pay up their back taxes and avoid the uncertainty of how this new government was going to deal with tax cheats. As I said, one of the most important issues to be addressed was agrarian land reform, and ironically, it was not one of the first things that the government tried to tackle because of the clear implications to U.S. relations and policy. Behind the scenes, they were being more thoughtful, but at the end of the day, It was simply to ensure that the bold moves they were about to take would be successful. It seemed as though the populace couldn't wait. And locally, in many Cuban municipalities, pseudo-reform began with reapportionment of land happening in small doses there. To put an end to this local practice, which was only creating complications for the larger policy question around land redistribution, In February 1959, the Castro government passed a law stating that anyone occupying land without waiting for the agrarian reform law would lose all rights to the benefits that would later be conferred by that law. As much as I have already revealed my own thoughts about Castro being simply a dictator, it's hardly fair to say about him at this point that he had all of the answers to his courses of action. They were not completely resolved at this moment. This was the early going in a revolution, and the situation was still more than somewhat fluid. And he was dealing with a populace that, while they loved him, it was still a necessity for him to lock the circumstances down and ensure control. And that required an enormous set of considerations regarding all sorts of constituencies that had authority and influence in the country. At that moment, in some ways, It was still politics 101. And of course, Fidel was a master in this particular political universe on the island of Cuba. Elections were a good example of the prickly nature of the circumstance. When Fidel arrived in Havana on January 8th, he said that elections would occur within 18 months. A few days later, he indicated that they would occur in 15 months. And then a month later, he indicated that it would be Unfair to have elections right away. Sound familiar? Then later, he would say elections would occur when political parties were organized. But then, no date was specified in that statement for when such organization would take place. What he was finding out as he was testing the populace was actually that the populace wasn't too interested in elections. And so it was an easier pivot than one might expect to avoid them. In April, he finally coined a new motto. Revolution first and elections later. (laughs) This crude initial version would later be refined and revised as the setting required. Land first, elections later. Work for every Cuban first, elections later. Schools and teachers for all children first, elections later. Hospitals and medicine first, elections later. Justice first, elections later. National sovereignty first, elections later. And so on, and so on, and so on. As you might expect, the American public and the American society at large was still sizing Castro up. It was too early, really. Too early to tell from their perspective. And they got their first close-up look after the revolution when he was invited by the American Society of Newspaper Editors to come to the United States. And that trip began on April 15, 1959. The trip started out as a potential request of Castro's government for aid from the United States. But during his speech to the editors, he actually gave instructions to his finance minister to not ask for aid when speaking to the United States Secretary of the Treasury. In later years, Castro would tell the story differently, as if the decision to not ask for aid was predetermined castro would go on a whirlwind tour while in the states and his trip brought him to places like mount vernon near washington dc to washington dc itself where he would visit the jefferson memorial and meet with richard nixon he would go to new york and make his way to central park and he would spend some time at princeton university and even spent time talking to students at harvard while he was in Washington, D.C., he visited the Lincoln Memorial, and he read the Gettysburg Address aloud in English and laid a wreath at Lincoln's feet. This public tour by Castro was largely successful as a public relations move in terms of gathering some level of public support inside the United States for the revolution and for Castro himself. But inside the U.S. government, the view of Castro was already solidifying, and it was More than negative. In order to avoid a public relations issue, President Eisenhower left town. He was not in Washington at the moment that Castro was there. He did, however, sanction Vice President Richard Nixon to meet with Fidel. The meeting occurred later in the day after Fidel had already made an appearance on Meet the Press. It was surprising, but Fidel agreed to do it and he actually conducted the interview on Meet the Press using his developing english skills later in the meeting with nixon more would be revealed nixon was demonstrative with him and asked him very pointedly when he that is castro was going to call elections and nixon lectured fidel indicating that the us would like to see elections no more than 4 years out they talked a lot about a myriad of subjects and nixon would suggest that perhaps an economic and political model similar to puerto rico should be something that Fidel should consider for Cuba. In the end, Fidel was taken back by the meeting, and he made it a point that Nixon should not dictate to nations that the Cuban people were very naturally nationalistic and would look with any suspicion on any program initiated under a concept where Cuba would be considered to be a colony of the United States. In the end, Nixon would conclude that Castro had the natural qualities that made him a leader of men and that he would be a force in the development of Cuba and possibly in the rest of Latin America. Nixon was right on this assessment. His final statement is that it would be a serious mistake to underestimate this man. And Nixon was right on that account, too. It took a few more months, but on May 17, 1959, in a ceremony that took place in the Sierra Maestra, the Agrarian Reform Law was signed. As we mentioned a little bit earlier, the revolutionaries had made their own decrees prior to taking control of the entire island, and their 1958 Law Number 3 had given land to peasants in rebel territory. It had been a basis for some elements of the new 1959 law that was now applicable across the entire island. This new law restricted ownership to a maximum of about 1,000 acres, although there were certain exceptions to have larger holdings for sugar plantations and cattle ranches. Similar to the concept of eminent domain, the state would seize the land and then compensate the owners through 20-year bonds payable at 4.5%. Once the land was in the hands of the government, there would be three potential uses. The first use would be for small grants of land to individuals who were currently without any land at all. The second use would be the consolidation and use in agricultural cooperatives. And lastly, some of the lands would be retained by the state for agricultural purposes and run as state-owned farms. The idea of cooperatives and state-owned farms were new concepts advancing the original 1958 law the law also prohibited any further foreign purchases of native Cuban lands. Interestingly enough, this legal prohibition on foreign purchases was present in the 1940 Constitution, but apparently was not enforced. As a means of administrating all of the changes that would be necessary under this new law, the law itself created a new administration organization known as the National Institute of Agrarian Reform. Ultimately, it would become the shadow organization under which much of Castro's early moves would be administrated. As you might expect, the most powerful forces that were against the reform were right here in the United States. And that was because most of the land that was being seized by the Cuban government belonged to United States interests. On June 11th, the United States government sent a formal diplomatic note protesting the law. The protests included a number of specific requests, including the idea that the compensation for the land should be in cash and should not be in the form of bonds payable at a later date. And in any case, compensation should be paid within six months after the land was taken. And of course, there was one more sticky element to this. Land in Cuba was subject to property taxes and property taxes are generally derived on land valuations derived specifically for tax purposes. Over the years, landholders had gotten away in the Batista era and prior to that even with land valuations for property tax purposes that were substantially under true market values, thus reducing their property tax bills. The Castro administration cleverly offered the holders compensation based on the tax values which were contained In the official property tax records, and which were likely severely undervalued when compared to market values. It was a clever way to box the landholders in on a lower price, and there was no way they could protest this point without having to explain why the tax values were so deflated for so long in relation to the true market values of these properties. The Cuban government made further justifications, indicating that, number one, they had no cash in their coffers and that much of it had been absconded with by the prior administration. And secondly, the interest rates on the bonds being offered were higher than what the U.S. government offered U.S. residents of Japanese descent whose U.S. land was confiscated during World War II. The early and official correspondence exchanges between Cuba and the United States on this topic Well, they were an attempt to deal with a very difficult circumstance, but the delicate dance would not last long. The expropriations began in June, and one of the largest seizures by the Castro government was a 40,000-acre estate held by the same company that owned the King Ranch in Texas, which was then the largest private landholding anywhere in the United States. The president of the company would fire off a letter to President Eisenhower requesting that he seize all the Cuban assets in the United States and that he should send Navy vessels to the Caribbean. He would provide in his letter an historical reminder that it had only been 60 years before that the U.S. had intervened and brought independence to Cuba and that Americans were not going to sit around and allow communism to permanently destroy that freedom. That was so recently delivered to the Cubans, as historian Ada Ferrer points out. Such sentiments exemplified the long-standing impasse between Cubans and Americans in trying to understand their shared history, and the two interpretations could not have been more at odds. What Americans saw as an act of selfless benevolence, Cubans saw as an act of colonial imposition. That antagonism mattered now more than ever, for it was precisely the colonial relationship between the United States and Cuba that the revolution was focused on challenging. Unable to perceive the relationship as a colonial one, Americans were at a loss to understand what was happening in Cuba and quick to perceive all of it as naivete and ingratitude at best, and, well, outright communism at worst. Well, and speaking of communism, no doubt all over Cuba, the specter of communism and the questions surrounding the adoption of communism were being hotly debated in almost every circle. Was Fidel a communist and was his government a communist government in disguise? Not only had the prime minister resigned, but also by June, the president had as well and parts of the cabinet, too. Many were indignant over the path that Castro was now seemingly taking. Hubert Matos, a cabinet member and a former 26th of July member, resigned, and Castro had him arrested as a traitor. It would be one of the first of many people arrested as traitors that did not agree. In the months that followed, more ministers resigned after Matos. By late 1959, There were great questions in the air as to what the revolution really had evolved into. In the beginning, it was a broad coalition, close to many, who wanted to be socially progressive and politically democratic. And above all, wanted to get rid of the corruption in the existing government. And even Castro himself, in all of his published works, starting with his History Will Absolve Me speech in 1953, and then all the way through the manifestos that were issued from the mountains in 1957 and 1958, well, none of these documents would set forth specific ideas that Castro or the rebels were going to establish a communist or socialist state or a communist or socialist economy. In fact, starting with Castro and with many other revolutionaries prior to coming into power, a good many of them were explicitly anti-communist. So was this a betrayal of the core of the revolution? For Castro, it was always a concern that the United States would step in and exert what they had done historically as an imperialist force. Even in Guatemala, a few years earlier, where there was a so-called legitimately elected government, well, as soon as the progressive agrarian reform was enacted there, in the eyes of Castro, the United States would call it a communist infiltration And then the CIA would orchestrate a coup. That was Castro's view of it. So in this simple view, not wanting the same thing to happen to Cuba that happened to Guatemala, Castro looked at it this way. Anti-communism, simply put, was counter-revolution. The United States was working hard doing some of the standard playbook things that the CIA did in those days, like dropping leaflets out of the sky all over the island attempting to educate the Cuban people on the dangers of communism. They went farther than that, for sure. They actually bombed sugarcane fields and factories, causing human misery and death, and doing exactly the opposite of what was necessary to win the hearts and minds of the Cuban people. On February 4th, the deputy prime minister from the Soviet Union, Anastasios Mikoyan, made a visit to Cuba. It was part of a new exhibition on Soviet science, technology, and culture. The exhibits had already traveled to Mexico City and New York, and Castro had invited McCoyan to bring the exhibition to Havana. From the United States' point of view, you could imagine that this moment was seismic. A high-level Soviet official being welcomed onto the island was encroachment, surely, on the domain of the Western world. And the Cubans made it a point to send a message to the U.S. by treating him in a spectacular way as part of his visit. When McCoyan became aware that there were criticisms to the agrarian reform while he was in Cuba, he made a daring speech and challenged the Cubans to go even further and to confiscate the lands associated with the agrarian reform and provide no compensation to the former owners. And go even further than that. Do the same thing for all means of production in the economy. As many expected, at the end of his visit, there was a large press conference and there was an announcement of a trade agreement between the Soviets and the Cubans. The Soviets agreed to purchase 20% of the annual Cuban sugar harvest, and they would do so over the next five years. And for their efforts, they got a better deal on the pricing than the United States was currently paying. And to top all of that off, the Soviets would be allowed to purchase the sugar in barter transactions, which could be in exchange for machinery, petroleum, and certain services of Soviet technicians that would be brought to the island. This visit by the Soviet deputy minister, when once our government, back in Washington, got wind of it, was seismic. The deputy minister was quite well received by the Cuban people, too, and it was apparent by the applause and the support he got from the Cuban audiences as he was making speeches to them. This visit by the Soviets was now so public that it ignited what was already the hottest topic, and that topic was whether or not Cuba was going to go the way of the communists. As you might expect in a dictatorship, the assault on the press was not far behind all of this. It wasn't long before many of the independent newspapers were shutting down, and as early as February, the government was already seizing various newspapers. By May, the oldest newspaper in Cuba folded, Diario de la Marina which was the conservative paper established in 1832. The last issue of the paper was published on May 12, 1960. Across the top of the last issue were the words, Rest in Peace. And a mock funeral was held with at least 100,000 Cubans coming out and attending in order to witness the symbolism that erased the oldest conservative newspaper on the island. The crowds would cheer. And it would not be long until the papers themselves, all of them, would be under Castro's control. He apparently never read that section in the Democracy Playbook that free press is essential in a democracy. On March 4, 1960, an event would occur that was incredibly reminiscent of the similar event that happened during the Spanish American War. And the Cubans point this out to the Americans. The French ship, La Cubra, had pulled into the Havana Harbor, and it was loaded with munitions that were coming from Belgium. The ship exploded without warning at 3.10 p.m. in the afternoon that day, and the upper structure of the ship was completely destroyed. Fires immediately broke out on the surrounding piers and in adjacent buildings, and then, 45 minutes later, as innocent first responders and others who had come onto the scene, a second explosion rocked the area. After it was all said and done, 75 people were killed, and there were more than 200 wounded, including members of the ship's crew, soldiers, first responders, and dock workers at the docks in Havana, and even just civilians who had rushed in to help. Like the blast that occurred during the Spanish-American War, to this day, no one knows the true cause of the explosion. If you listen to the officials of the Castro government, they'll tell you that it was planted by the United States and it was a pressure-sensitive bomb that was set to be automatically detonated by the pressure changes that resulted from the munitions removal that had begun that day. The Cuban government used the Cubra event to point the finger directly at the United States. This only served to continue to rally the Cuban people against the U.S. government. It was an easy tie-in for the Cuban government in that the U.S. government had been actively campaigning for months to prevent any other nation on the globe from selling arms or ammunition to the new Cuban government. In the sobering aftermath, Cuban officials would attend the funerals of the dead, and Fidel Castro would speak at the ceremony and point the finger in his forceful oration that day, mentioning the United States more than 30 times in his talk. The explosion on the Cubra and Castro's forceful comments at the funeral were another important turning point. And many involved in the circumstances, including those in the U.S. State Department, felt that this was the point of no return. Others in other branches of the U.S. government had already reached that decision long before the Kubra incident. Just as Castro was progressing so quickly, so was the rotation in the views taken by U.S. officials. By November 1959, President Eisenhower supported a new recommendation that all actions and policies of the U.S. government should be designed to encourage, within Cuba and elsewhere in Latin America, opposition to the extremist anti-American course of the Castro regime. The Cuba incident and Castro's response would make it clear to everyone in the U.S. government that a harder line was necessary. On March 17, 1960, President Eisenhower, at a meeting of his National Security Council, authorized a program of covert action against the Castro regime, The policy expressly aimed to bring about the replacement of the Castro regime with one that was more devoted to the true interests of the Cuban people and more acceptable to the U.S. Regime change, however, was to happen in such a manner as to avoid any appearance of U.S. intervention. The first big dispute resulted from the circumstances around the Cuban-Soviet trade agreement. In that agreement, the Soviets would provide 6 million barrels each year of crude oil to Cuba. That's right, I said crude oil, not refined oil. Crude oil needs to be refined, and there actually were three existing crude oil refineries in Cuba. And at the time, all three of these refineries were U.S.-owned companies. And one of them was Esso, and one of them was Shell, and the other one was owned by Texaco. By this time, Che Guevara had become head of Cuba's National Bank. Initially, he went to the three U.S. companies and he attempted to negotiate. Well, actually, to tell them that Cuba was going to use the oil as a method of payment for certain debts and that the Cuban government, in addition, wanted them to refine the oil. As you might have expected under the circumstances, Esso, Shell, and Texaco conferred first with the U.S. government before they made any decision on this request from Guevara. And the U.S. government weighed in. All three companies said no to Guevara. And then, at this point, Fidel himself got involved to solve the impasse, and he ordered the companies to refine the oil. But there was no budging on the part of the three U.S. oil companies. And when they again refused the Cuban government decided to play hardball. They then instituted what they deemed to be an intervention. That's a circumstance where the Cuban government took over active management of the facilities on a day-to-day basis. At this point, it was short of confiscating the refineries themselves, but it was just one step shy of that. The U.S. government and business interests were outraged over the steps taken by Castro's government and they expressed their views very publicly. They would characterize it in short as Cuba's relentless economic aggression against the United States. The retaliatory response that came from the United States government next would play right into the hands of the Soviet Union. The U.S. immediately moved to cut the sugar quota with Cuba. The sugar quota was a pillar of the economic infrastructure between the two countries. Fundamentally, It was an agreement that the United States would buy a set amount of the Cuban sugar crop every year at a set price. The United States was the major buyer of the sugarcane crop in Cuba. Without the quota, or a lowered quota, there would be no assurances that the entire sugarcane crop that was harvested could be sold. On July 6th, in response to the takeover of the oil refineries, the United States lowered the sugar quota. In light of this corresponding move by the United States, Cuba was left with no choice but to find a buyer for its sugar cane. Castro's government would immediately approach the Soviet Union, and they got what they needed. The Soviets agreed to buy all the sugar that the United States was no longer obligated to buy. That transaction sealed the deal, and the Cubans were now in. They were now in even deeper economically with the Soviets. The Cubans weren't finished. On August 5th, they conducted a large-scale rally in the baseball stadium in Havana. It was the closing ceremony of the first-ever Congress of Latin American Youth. 35,000 people attended, and at the gathering, after showing up late as usual, Fidel spoke, and he railed on the United States. He would read aloud, verbatim, all of Law 851 the new Cuban law which allowed for the expropriation of all U.S.-owned assets in Cuba. Castro would go on to articulate the first 26 American corporations that were the target of the law and the corporations that would be forced to hand over all of their assets in Cuba to the Cuban government. As you might expect, it included the oil refineries that I mentioned earlier, and it also included the U.S.-owned telephone and electric companies, as well as 36 sugar mills. Overall, the tally of assets were valued at $829 million, assets that U.S. corporations and U.S. business interests were to hand over to the Cuban government. The Cubans, in their declaration of this law, were quite clever as well. The expropriations were to be compensated in 50-year bonds at 2% interest, Drawn from funds specifically set aside from the sale of Cuban sugar to the United States. How clever it was that the Cubans would say that the money to be paid for these assets would have to be drawn from money set aside from the funds that Cuba received from the sugar sales to the U.S., when just moments earlier the U.S. had curtailed such purchases in a radical way, and there was certainly the possibility of even further curtailment as sanctions were bound to increase. It was a nice way of Cuba saying that they were not going to pay any compensation to the U.S. for the expropriation of these assets. Or at least, honestly, if I were sitting on the Cuban side negotiating a deal like this, it was a brilliant move because, to the extent that the U.S. decided to continue to reduce the purchase of sugar, which was critical to the Cuban economy, it would have a direct and negative impact on the ability of former owners of expropriated property to receive remuneration. The practical reality associated with all of this was that the Cubans never intended to pay any of it. You see, they anticipated the consequences of their own actions, and they realized that the U.S. reaction was going to escalate. And in the end, it was likely going to result in an embargo. And if it did, It would allow them the ability to avoid paying the first penny back to the people that they had just stolen $829 million from, people and organizations in the U.S. Castro would stand before the throng of 35000 and read the name of each company. 24th on the list was the United Fruit Company, and when this company's name was shouted out by Castro, the crowd went wild. And sitting on the platform next to Castro was Jacobo Arbenz, the former president of Guatemala, who had been removed by the 1954 coup that was engineered by the CIA. A coup that had developed after the newly elected Guatemalan government had attempted to go after the United Fruit Company in Guatemala. Arbenz stood up and embraced Castro as he shouted out the name of the United Fruit Company. As is so typical at Castro's rallies, the whole thing went on until about 4 o'clock a.m. in the morning. And the history of Cuba, now the week that this Public Law 51 was announced, well, it has now become the week known as the week of popular jubilation. It was a pretty simple thing for the Cuban government to have a plaque with a new Cuban name inscribed on it and have the old one torn down And the organization that was formerly a U.S. company was now instantly a company illegally owned by the Cuban government. In the aftermath of all of this, it was not hard to take sides, ideological sides, on what was right and what was wrong. If you were a part of the downtrodden of Cuba, this was all just in the world of karma, payback to the gringos in the U.S. If you were used to living in a capitalist society where property rights and human rights were sacred, it simply was not. No man, no one man, has the right to make all the final determinations. It was a dictatorship, and it was becoming a communist nation in the backyard of the United States of America. My God, what had he gone so wrong? Where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio? Thank you for listening to episode 138 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Join us in our next episode, episode 139, as we make the pivot and begin to explore the structure of the covert actions that were now being approved for use on Cuba.